Welcome back to Thinking Theologically, the show where we teach you how and why to think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodge, and joined, as always, by our resident theologian and training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how you doing? I'll be doing a lot better when I'm off on vacation here. And, well, actually, when this comes out, I will be on vacation. Yes, yeah, we were recording this just uh, a few days after we recorded part one of, of this podcast because you're you're going to be living it up. You going to a beach somewhere or just going somewhere where you're not doing anything? Or both? We've, uh, my family has a cabin uh, out on the lake, so okay. um, kind of beachy. You can go out on the lake, boat, swim, that kind of stuff, but also cabin exclude yourself not do anything relax for a week so play some golf a little bit of both okay sweet sounds good which which just means i have to get everything done before i leave so i don't have to work on vacation which makes the weeks leading up to vacation quite stressful yeah. but you, you don't have like much almost less there. work there, there's a little bit maybe but mostly it's just the week before you have a ton of extra work and then none for a bit. But that's all right. My vacation's coming much later, so I'm I'm in it and I'm gonna be in it for a little bit. But that's all right. It is okay. Glad we're getting this thing recorded and put out there, and I hope that those of you listening are also glad that we're putting this thing out here, even though uh, one of ours is on vacation. We hope you enjoyed a part one of this two-part series here. I don't think we'll be extending this one uh, necessarily outside of two parts. Uh, but you never yeah, know. You never know. We we might. We might. And if you have some ideas on how we can expand it or a different direction we might need to be going in with podcasts on some shows, you can let us know at strongchurchministries at gmail.com or get in touch with either of us on Facebook, Spencer on Twitter as well. And if you're not following him, go follow him for, you know, stuff, comments on things that are happening in the world, I suppose. I don't know what you do on Twitter. Yes. I mean, I know what you, I know what me. you like generally do. I don't, you specifically, I don't know what you do. I'm sure they're, I'm sure it's good. I'm sure it's great. You'll find some good stuff on uh, In part one... Of the podcast we talked about, let's see if I can remember the book, The uh, Managing Transition by William Bridges, a, a business book that had uh, had some good application uh, or illustrated well uh, kind of Christianity, uh, especially in our restoration movement, which we highlighted last episode as well. Uh, but his organizational life cycle, we spent time talking about. And uh, those very quickly, just as a recap, uh, dreaming the dream, launching the venture, getting organized, making it, becoming an institution, and those being those five natural course of events that happen with any, uh, that happen with any sort of organization. And then it's six closing in, where things go inward and eventually to death that we focused in on uh, last week. And what we really want to focus in on today of how to avoid closing in so that instead of our churches dying, we make our way back to dreaming the dream. Uh, so 
with all of that, that's kind of that's part of where we're going today. We want to avoid closing in and talk about how churches can avoid closing in and go back to step one, uh, redream the dream. After we get that, we are an institution point uh, and all of that in in step five. The other part of this, though, uh, I guess we could say we're going to look at it with theological lens because that is what this podcast is about. Uh, if you are hoping that we would give you specific ministries your church can do to keep from dying, that's not directly what this podcast is about. Hopefully, though, as we go through this episode, uh, the questions that we ask, the theological questions that we are considering with how we avoid closing in and instead redream the dream, uh, hopefully as you go through those questions, you can leave here going at the congregation I'm a part of. This is how we can avoid closing in and instead redream the dream again. Uh, so that's that's what we're going to look at today, uh, the application of part one. If you haven't listened to part one, we recommend that you go and check that out. And with all that being said, Spencer, do you want to dive into question number one that we should consider? Yeah, so kind of like you said, the, the goal, at, at least thinking about churches dying from the the model that Bridges gives us of uh, the organizational life cycle is going back to that first stage and redreaming the dream. We said we've seen that in the history of uh, churches of Christ. We've seen that in the history of Christianity uh, as a whole, going back to the Protestant Reformation was an example of redreaming the dream, the American Restoration Movement. That's our Church of Christ heritage is an example of redreaming the dream. And so how do we, like you said, keep from from closing in and dying and go back to redreaming the dream? And if you remember from the, the church aspect, we kind of connected those first couple stages of redreaming the dream, the venture organization to the the early church. You had the dream in the mind of God that's brought to fruition in Jesus on the day of Pentecost, the establishment of the church. That early working of the church through the apostles, kind of that venture. Eventually, you start getting an organization, elders, deacons, ministers. We mentioned you see that at the pastorals, Paul's final letters written at the end of the first century. You see that organizational structure beginning to develop. So how do we go back to those early stages, redream the dream, find the life that was there in the early church as it was growing and thriving, and even the life that was there at other moments where we've seen redreaming the dream, the Protestant Reformation, the Restoration Movement, where the church just exploded and grew and was thriving. How do we get back to that mindset? How do we get back to that kind of life? And like you said, we're wanting to think about it theologically. Think about some theological principles that we can then build some very practical things off of, uh, some theological principles that can be used and applied to any congregation anywhere in the world in any context as they begin to find concrete ways to go about redreaming the dream, uh, creating that life in the church again. And the first question may sound very basic, and it is, but it's important if we're going to go back to the beginning. We have to ask the question, who are we? Who are we as the church? And that's an ecclesiology 
question, uh, which ecclesiology is the study of the church. It's a theological question of who is the church? How do we define the church? And that asking this question is important for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's important because I would probably argue that the majority of people cannot adequately answer that question. They can bring up maybe some a few things, maybe point to a couple of scriptures, but may not be able to comprehensively answer the question of who is the church. And the problem with that is how we answer this question will guide everything else that we do at the church. Everything that we teach and everything that we do should be and will be a byproduct of who we believe ourselves to be. On the basis of who we believe ourselves to be is going to determine what we teach and what we do. And so if we can't adequately answer that question, or if we can't answer it in a way that's completely comprehensive and all-inclusive of who we are as the church, we're either going to be kind of running around doing all kinds of things, maybe even good things, but not have very much structure, not have very much foundation to what we're doing or teaching, just kind of all over the place. Or if we do answer it, but not comprehensively, we're going to be missing out on things we ought to be doing things we ought to be teaching as a church. And we see this in the idea of thinking of how we're closing in, as Bridges talks about it. Too often, we simply go through the motions of church, forgetting the purpose of those actions, forgetting that everything that we do is meant to be a product of who we are. And we talked about that. You can go back and we did a few episodes in a series on modern-day idolatry where that was our focus. We talked about Bible study. We talked about the church in general. We we talked about these different things that we do as a church that we're supposed to be doing, that we ought to be doing, but we tend to close in and just focus on doing them, going through the motions, doing what we've always done, and we forget why we do them. More particularly, we focused in... uh, that series of podcasts on how those actions are meant to transform and change our lives and how just going through the motions, just doing what we've always done and forgetting the purpose prevents those things from transforming us. And so that's why it's important for us to ask the question, who are we? Because that builds the foundation for the things that we do and determines what we do, what we don't do, what we teach, and what we don't teach. So this is how I would define the church. This is how I would answer the question, who are we? This is a long definition, but as I mentioned, it's important to have one that's all-inclusive as much as possible so we're not missing any aspect of who we are and therefore the way that we ought to be operating. So I define the church as an eschatological, multi-ethnic community. Eschatological refers to eschatology, is the area of theology that's focused on end times. It's the area that's focused Christ's second coming, heaven and hell, eternal life, judgment, those kinds of things. And so by an eschatological community, I mean, while yes, we are a community that exists now, 
in the real world, in the broken world, we're also the community, the citizens of the kingdom of God that are going to exist in the eschaton. That, that is, we are the community of God's people that's going to exist in heaven, uh, exist after Christ's return. And so we, that's the now but not yet aspect of who we are. We're a community now. We're a broken, sinful community in any ways now, but we're also this community that is waiting to be and will ultimately be redeemed in the end. We're a multi-ethnic community, so we're a community that spans ethnicities, spans uh, cultures, spans uh, political beliefs, spans all these kinds of things, which is one of the primary emphasis in the New Testament particularly between Jews and Gentiles. Paul spends a great deal of time in places such as Galatians and Rome, Romans establishing that the church is a multi-ethnic community. So the church is an eschatological, multi-ethnic community of believers in the crucified and risen Lord, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the Truine, triune God. And there's a lot there, and this is what I'm trying to get at. We're, as a community, we're a community that believes in something, that has faith in something, that has a foundation built upon something. And that foundation is in the crucified and risen Lord. Jesus as Lord means that he's the one that receives our ultimate obedience as Lord. But he was shown to be Lord through his death and resurrection his death dying to sin, taking our place in sin on the cross, receiving that punishment of sin, but rising from the grave to conquer sin and death, showing himself to be Lord. Jesus as Lord, I then say the crucified and risen Lord, Jesus, that is the human being, the incarnation of God, Jesus, the human being who is the Messiah, the one promised about in the Old Testament, the one that fulfills the promises to Abraham and to David and to Israel. And this Lord, crucified and risen Lord, this human being Jesus, this Old Testament Messiah, is also the son of the triune God. That brings in our foundation built on the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we are... so. The church is an eschatological, multi-ethnic community of believers in the crucified and risen Lord, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the triune God, who live in God's grace and redemption as believers in Jesus. We we receive the benefits of being in Christ, receiving God's grace, living in the redemption that is found in Jesus. And then we are to spread the boundaries of the kingdom of God through our enactment of the gospel by the power of the Spirit. And so you get our mission there to go out into all the world and to proclaim the gospel, the gospel which is what we're built upon, the crucified and risen Lord, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the triune God, We enact that gospel in the things that we say, in the lives that we live, to expand the kingdom of God, and we're able to do that by the power of 
the spirit. And I would probably, actually now that I look at this, rephrase the middle of that, who live in the Father's grace and Jesus' redemption, just to kind of bring in the Trinity aspect that we're built upon. But I think that kind of helps encompass all aspects of who we are that can then begin help us helping us to determine what we do and what we say. So the church is an eschatological, multi-ethnic community of believers in the crucified and risen Lord, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the triune God, who live in the Father's grace and the redemption of the Son and spread the boundaries of the kingdom of God through the enactment of the gospel by the power of the Spirit. There's a lot there. But I think if you cut anything out, you'd be missing a major aspect of who we are. And so better understanding who we are, I think, can then help determine and keep us from just going through the motions of the church, just doing things to do things, and help us sit back and begin to understand why we do what we do. Everything from the programs that we have to our worship on Sundays. Why do we do them? Well, it's because of who we believe ourselves to be. And until we understand that better, it's going to be difficult to redream a dream, to get back to that life and growth that we see in the early church if we don't understand who we are, because then we don't know what to do. We don't know how to redream the dream. We don't even know what the dream is until we understand who we are. I think uh, I think your definition covers. Uh, I mean, there, there's nothing else I can think to add uh, to what you have said there. I think it covers all of those bases. And again, uh, uh, as Spencer said a moment ago, uh, go back and listen to that uh, modern day idolatry series. It was it was five parts, I believe. Um, in that, we cover this kind of thing. The the who we are and the purposes behind the things that we do. Uh, and you kind of see how all of that connects. Um, you probably know where we're going with question number two, based on that series and some of the things that we just said. Uh, once we figure out who we are, then we move to question number two of what is our primary purpose? What are what are we here to do? Uh, and Spencer has this broken up into a couple things um, that we're going to discuss here is our primary purpose belief or is our primary purpose mission spencer go for it yeah so once like you said once we understand who we are then we can begin to ask the questions of what do we do what do we teach based upon that definition of who we are and so is our primary goal of the church to teach the right thing or to do the right thing. As may have come to your mind right off the bat when Jack asked the question, is our primary purpose belief or mission? One of the things you may have thought is, you know, it's possible for a church to both teach the right thing, but yet not do the right thing, or to do the right thing, but not teach the right thing. So most of us would understand both are important. We're called to teach the right thing. We see that connected to who we are because we have this foundation of what we believe, belief in Jesus, what God has done, what God has revealed in Jesus. And we also have that aspect of doing the right thing. You see that in 
belief in Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord means we're obedient and follow him as Lord. The enactment of the gospel in our effort to spread the kingdom of God through the power of the spirit is all aspects of doing the right thing. So which is our primary goal? What is our primary purpose, belief or mission, teaching the right thing or doing the right thing? I would argue that the primary goal, the primary purpose of the church is to do the right thing. It's mission. But doing the right thing, our mission as the church, is always and must be a byproduct of teaching the right thing. You lay the foundation of our belief, and then mission, what we do, is built upon that foundation. So here's the primary reason why I would say that, is that if the church is truly a church in in the biblical sense, in other words, if if the church is a church based upon the definition that I just gave of the church, then the life of that church community is going to center around the gospel. That's what the church is built upon, the gospel of Jesus Christ. A, A group not founded on the gospel cannot adequately be called a church. You don't have a church without the the gospel. Uh, the gospel is necessary for a church being a church. And so if the church is founded on the gospel, then everything that she does is going to be a byproduct of the gospel. Uh, the things that she teaches, the things the church believes and proclaims are going to determine what she does. And Like we talked about in our series on idolatry when we talked about Scripture, the point of studying the Bible is never just to know the Bible, but it's to transform us to look more like Jesus. We know the Bible so that we can apply and live out what Scripture teaches us, which is why I would say the primary purpose, the primary goal is of mission, because if we're built on the gospel, we've got that foundation. Our study, our teaching of Scripture, which is vitally important. I don't want anyone to hear me say that it's not important. No change, no new dream, nothing of significance happens without a change in mind, a change in thinking. It begins with teaching. It begins with study of the Bible. That's how we understand who we are is through a reading of Scripture. But that understanding of who we are, that understanding of what Scripture teaches is always meant to produce something in us. That's always the ultimate purpose, even of what we believe, is to change us. And so while teaching, while belief is vitally important, because we don't get the mission without it, we don't begin to redream the dream without it. We don't understand who we are without the teaching. No changes can be made. Nothing can be implemented until we begin to change the way that we think and perceive things, which comes through teaching and knowledge of Scripture. But the ultimate goal there is to provide some kind of change, and that may be change in regards to what we do, the the teaching of the gospel, our understanding of who we are may change the way that we do things in order to better live out who we are. We do this, we don't do that. We add this program, we take this one away. We do this in our community, we don't do that in our community. It could be something like that. But it also could be a little less concrete than that. Uh, It could be simply growing in our relationship with God. Because the more we know about God, 
the better our relationship is going to be with him. It's similar to the way a husband and wife's relationship works. A wife, for example, may desire to know who her husband's favorite athlete is, and that knowledge by her may not result in any action on her part ever in her entire life. But by knowing that about her husband, it increases their relationship because of how they now better know one another. And the same thing is true with with God. Uh, No knowledge of God is bad or unnecessary knowledge, but all knowledge is meant to do something, to grow our relationship with God, to be enacted in concrete ways, to live out who we understand ourselves to be as the church. And so we have to be focused on what we're doing. What are we doing with our knowledge? And so a question that I think is critical for us to ask, and you may not answer this question the same way that I do, but the question of, is God going to be more satisfied with a church that knows a lot, but doesn't do anything with that knowledge or doesn't do very much with that knowledge? Or is God going to be more satisfied with a church that knows a lot less, but actively lives out everything that they do know? And I would argue that Scripture shows that God will be more satisfied with the church who knows less, but lives out everything that they know, than a church that has a huge savings account of knowledge, but never cashes it out to actually use it in concrete ways in either growing their relationship with God or living out their identity of who they are as a church. And that kind of place, being in a place where we know a lot but don't do very much with that knowledge is a prime example of this idea of closing in. When we're focused inward, it's all about what we believe but not very much about what we're actually out doing in the world. We don't let that belief result in any kind of mission. And I have may have said this on the podcast before. I say it in all kinds of places all the time. But I believe maybe the primary reason, at least one of the bigger reasons, churches are dying, they're closing in and dying in the words of Bridges, is that we talk too much and we do too little. We've become so inwardly focused on making sure that everyone believes what is, quote, right, that we have forgotten our mission to the world. Consider, for example, I think this is one way to go about uh, diagnosing whether we've gotten ourselves to this point of talking too much, of doing too little, of being so inwardly focused that we forget our mission. Consider the activities that your church, that that the church is to engage in. I would tend to divide the activities of the church into four primary categories. Teaching, fellowship, worship, evangelism. I think those four categories, I think you can put everything else that fits in with who we are as the church under those categories, teaching, fellowship, worship, evangelism. How does your church divide time between each of those activities? 
Do you spend most of your time doing one of those, two of those, three of those? Or do you divide your time evenly between all four of them? And I think the way that our churches answer that question will determine whether we have become inwardly focused and care only about what we believe, only about what we teach, and have forgotten about the mission of what we ought to be doing. We have the first half of our definition of the church. Maybe community entails that fellowship, but maybe we have the first half, the community, the belief and faith in Jesus, uh, the, the life in God's grace, but maybe we've forgotten the end of that, that we are to enact the gospel and spread the kingdom through the power of the Spirit. And that's so important because, as I mentioned before, what we teach is important. But people tend, and I think this is true for most people, learn more on the job than they do just hearing things. Most people learn better by doing than by hearing. Uh, For example, an example I I like to use is fixing a car You can read a car manual all day, but that's not going to be near as helpful as actually going out and working on the car, especially with the supervision of someone who is much more knowledgeable and has been working on cars a lot longer than you have. Going out and actually working on the car with their help is going to teach you a lot more than just reading the manual. The manual is important. Because you need to know what parts are in the car, where are the parts, because they're not always going to be in exactly the same place in every car, what kind of parts are there, that things are going to change from car to car. So the manual is important, but it it's not going to teach you as much as then getting that foundation and going out and actually using it. And that's one of the great benefits of mission. It's built upon the manual, if you will. It, it, what we do is built upon what we believe. But what we believe becomes much more concrete. It becomes much more internalized. Our relationship with God becomes much stronger when we actually do those things, when we see God in action, when we enact the gospel that we believe. And similarly, churches tend to complain today about losing and not attracting young people, people of younger generations. And I think one of the primary reasons is that younger generations need a cause to get behind. Causes are important to them. I don't know if any of you watch Shark Tank, but Shark Tank, you have these new entrepreneurial businesses, and it seems like almost every business that come on comes on nowadays has a, some kind of cause. They, they give some portion of their proceeds to some kind of cause, uh, saving animals, uh, providing jobs to to women in African countries, helping uh, orphans that are in need, something like that. Just about every business has some kind of cause that their business is built upon wanting to help that cause. That's so important to young people, having a cause to get behind. They're not content with just sitting around and talking about doing good, but they want to actually go out and do good. And I think the church is should be a draw to young people for that very reason if we're actually out living out the mission of who we believe ourselves 
to be. If we understand the dream of who we are and what our mission ought to be in the world, and we actually go and live that out, I believe that's going to be a draw to young people. I've said in sermons here at at Tuttle before that most of the big causes that younger people are getting behind, everything from care of the environment to Me Too type stuff, calling out and addressing sexual abuse, sexual harassment, racism, all these big issues of really justice type issues, care and love issues ought to be things that the church stands for because we stand for life. We stand for love. We stand for justice, but too often we're closed in and we spend time arguing about who's right about these issues and we never actually do anything to address them. And younger generations are like, I don't want to sit down and argue about these things. I want to actually go and try to solve these problems that exist in the world, which should be what the church is already doing. But unfortunately, shame on us that young people don't feel like they can find an outlet to address those needs in the church because all we do is fight about the issues and they go and join other groups outside of the church to address the issues, to feed the poor, to clothe the homeless, which are specific things, if I remember correctly, that Jesus tells us we ought to be going out and doing. And that's part of the dream. We have to redream of what we ought to be doing in the world, the way we ought to be impacting the world that, unfortunately, more often than not, we don't do the best job at. Yeah, if you um, if you consider uh, like Acts 2 uh, as the, the church is beginning, uh, there is a, and this directly is what you're talking about here, you know, belief or mission, and coming down very solidly on the mission line, uh, but again, making clear what Spencer said earlier, uh, that does not mean that teaching does not matter or that it's unimportant. But you see in Acts 2, they're uh, listening to the apostles teaching, they're growing in those things, and then what are they doing? Well, they are having a massive impression on the community around them because of the way that they're taking care of each other with uh, food and housing and clothing and all of those things. Uh, and that's that is the example we see throughout uh, the spread of the church through Acts uh, and in other places as well uh, in various letters uh, dealing with okay foundation of apostles and prophets and then that turns into growth because of the action that follows uh, all of that teaching and thing number two and I this we're not a business, but the church is an organization. It, it, it has structure. It has a way that it's supposed to function in all of this. Uh, considering what uh, the younger generations are involved in, what drives them, especially knowing that they are very uh, mission-driven. There, there needs to be some kind of purpose, cause behind what they are doing because they would rather go and do something to deal with an issue instead of talking about an issue uh, is something that you need to consider if you're thinking about, okay, how does this actually grow? How do more people get involved? Again, all of that is on the basis of the gospel. We're not turning church into commodity and how do we sell things best. That's not what we're talking about. It's what is the church supposed to look like? What are people looking for in the church? Is that consistent with the gospel? How do we do that? How do we make those things happen? Okay, this is question number three. 
talking about centering everything on gospel and centering everything, uh, belief with foundation, and then moving to mission. Question number three is, are we teaching the gospel? So if, like you said, if what we do, if our mission is a byproduct of what we believe, of what we teach, and what we believe and teach ought to be the gospel, the church is an eschatological community, uh, a multi-ethnic community that believes, that has faith in the crucified and risen Lord, Jesus the Messiah, the son of the triune God. That 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 is the gospel, the, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. That is the gospel. It's on that foundation that we are built. That's who we are. It's on that foundation that we understand our mission. It's on that foundation, therefore, that we begin to redream the dream of who we are and what we ought to be doing in the world. So that leads to the question of, is that what we are teaching? Is that the focus of our teaching? Is the core of what we teach in our churches the gospel? Is the core the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, or is it something else? Is the core of our teaching our opinions about certain scriptures that might actually be a little less clear than we think that they are? Is the center of our teaching law-based? Do this, do that, do this thing over here, and you're going to make God happy by doing those things? Is the center of our teaching what makes us different from other churches, from other groups of people? Is that what's at the center of the things that we teach? Is the center of our teaching salvation, what I need to do to be saved? Is it self-centered? Is it on what I gain? Or is it on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, have we neglected the weightier matters like Jesus accuses the Pharisees of? The Pharisees are, are accused of neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Jesus, the example that Jesus, one of the examples Jesus gives of this is that they tithe all their different spices, but in essence fail to love people, is in essence his accusation mm-hmm. towards them. And it's interesting, Jesus never tells the Pharisees that it's wrong or they shouldn't be tithing all their spices. That's fine. The problem that Jesus is accusing them of is they're more focused on that than the weightier matters of the law. In, in other words, the center of the law that Jesus defines as loving God and loving your neighbor. The center of our faith is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That shows the love of God for people, and everything else is built upon that foundation. It's interesting, when Paul defines briefly what the gospel is, and briefly is important because you could argue that the entire letter of Romans, all 16 chapters, is an explanation of the gospel. That's not very brief. But when Paul briefly describes the gospel, like he does in Philippians 2 or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It, that, that's all it is. And the then 
Paul builds upon that in those passages of what are the implications, the implications of salvation, the implications of the way that we live, but it's all built on Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. Paul says that he desires to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's where it begins. Can we say the same thing about our churches? Because it's on that foundation that we understand who we are. It's on that foundation that we define our mission and what we ought to be doing out in the world. Are we focused on that or are we focused on something else? Have we neglected, as Jesus accused the Pharisees, of the weightier matters of the law? Until Jesus is at the core of our teaching, we're not going to rightly understand who we are and we're not going to rightly understand our mission in the world. And again, it's not that these other things don't matter at all, but you, especially that that quote of Paul of uh, knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, uh, he mentions that in 1 Corinthians, and the rest of the book is dealing with worship and prophesying and head coverings and eating laws and et cetera, et cetera. All those stuff matter, but only on the basis of Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's got to be at the center of this or all of those conversations, things that we may fight over, which is the inward thing that we're talking about. Um, all of that is just wasting time and completely missing the point uh, if he's not there, if Jesus is not there in the center. Okay, so go ahead. Yeah, everything else that we do, whether it be worship, baptism, whatever, makes no sense without right. Jesus. It, it only gains its meaning from Jesus. But when, again, some of those examples I gave, they're all inward focused. My salvation, my opinions, what I want, what makes me different from others. We're all focused inwardly on ourselves, and we're not focused on Jesus. And then, in Bridges' terms, we die, which maybe is what we should do if we're more focused on ourselves than on Jesus. You could argue that that was the problem of those seven churches in sure. Revelation that God, uh, in essence, says, I'm going to stomp on you unless you change your focus. And maybe that's a warning that we should think about a little the, bit more. Um, the Old Testament uh, punishments for the sake of correcting injustice but leaving the remnant so that the next group can do better the flood and, you know, every minor prophet and major prophet uh, speaks to that kind of idea. All right, we have, we've covered here, uh, who are we? What is our primary purpose? Uh, mission with belief is our, our basis, but leading to mission. Uh, are we teaching the gospel, that belief system that we were talking about anchors everything? Question number four is, Okay, with all of that stuff considered, what governs the decisions we make? Because if we're talking about not focusing inward and instead going back to redreaming the dream, uh, what what governs what we decide to do as far as ministries or plans or events or just what governs those things? So if we begin redreaming the dream by getting back to understanding who we are, understanding our mission in the world, redefining the gospel or putting the gospel back in the center of who we are and what we teach that then defines who we are and what we do. Those things that we do, the decisions that we make about what we do, 
How do we make those? Because again, this focus on turning inwardly, we tend, we can tend to want to make decisions with an inward focus rather than a gospel focus. Examples of an inward focus is we do things because that's the way they've always been done. We, we make decisions on, well, this is the way that we've always done it, so we're going to continue to do it that way. Or you ask, why do we do this? Well, we've always done this, which, by the way, is not a very good answer to why you do something, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, but that's an example of inward focus. We're just going to keep doing things like we've always done them. Or another example of inward focus decision-making is that we make decisions primarily out of obligations to members. Maybe that's making happy the members that give a lot because we're worried about, we, we want to make sure we meet our budget, mm. so we have to make those members happy, and they end up having the most power in the the church. Again, I would argue that probably should be Jesus, uh, the one we should be trying to make happy, but that's not always the way that we make decisions. And that's not always conscience conscious. Sometimes we do do it unconsciously, but we can also do it based on members' feelings. Who is going to be upset that we make this decision or that decision? And I I care more, I care less about making the right decision, making a gospel-centered decision, and I'm more focused on making a decision that's going to make people happy. I said this in, I've been teaching through Romans and I just finished up in our adult class here. And we, we were talking about the conflict over meat in Romans 14 and Romans 15. And there in Romans 15, Paul says, don't put a stumbling block in front of anyone or, or, or a hindrance to their faith. And a lot of the times we apply that to, see, Paul says don't do things that upset a fellow Christian, but that's not what Paul says. Uh, he says a hindrance or a stumbling block. That is something that's going to destroy a person's faith or at least hinder their uh, maturing in faith. And I said 99% of the time we make decisions that make people upset, we're not putting a stumbling block or hindrance in front of them. They're not uh, at risk of losing their faith. We're not slowing down their maturation in faith. They're just upset, and they'll probably be over it in a day or a week. I said, even if you make a decision that makes someone mad enough to go to the church across town or the church down the road, that's not the same as them losing their faith. They're still, they're still at church. They're just not at your church anymore. And, but an inward focus cares more about that than the gospel. Again, if the gospel is at the core of who we are, of what we do, of our mission, then the gospel must also be at the center of every single decision that we make all those other things, while at times they may be things that are worthy of thinking about. It's not bad to think about how you've done things. It's it's not bad to care about how other people are going to react to it, but they're not primary. The primary thing is the gospel. And so everything that we do should have a clear purpose behind it that is connected to the gospel. If there's not a clear gospel purpose that can be articulated, or if what we're doing no longer serves a gospel purpose like it once did. There may be plenty of things that used to be very effective in living out the gospel that 
today no longer work. If a gospel purpose can't be articulated or if it no longer serves a gospel purpose, it needs to be given up. To hold on to it is to live in a way, as harsh as it sounds, that is contrary to the gospel because we're doing things based on something other than the gospel if it doesn't fulfill a purpose of us living out the gospel. And so we need to not only ask questions before we do things and ask questions about the things that we're already doing. Okay, what's the gospel purpose behind this? But we need to ask questions, is it actually working? The gospel, we may be able to say the gospel purpose is to evangelize. Well, is it actually effective for evangelism? Well, no, it hasn't worked. We haven't brought anybody in in 10 years. Well, it it may have a gospel purpose, but it's not actually fulfilling that gospel purpose. We should probably try something Mm. different if we're going to be primarily focused on living out the gospel. What's the gospel purpose, and is it actually fulfilling that purpose? If we want to redream a gospel dream— which is in essence what we're talking about here, we have to ask these gospel-centered questions about what we're doing. Um, Our final question here in just a moment is, uh, who belongs in the church? And I have a feeling uh, that this is going to bring us back to our definition of who we are, uh, as well as the uh, the primary purpose of what we do, uh, our... Uh, belief-motivated mission, uh, that belief being the gospel, and whether we're teaching those things, who the gospel is for, uh, will filter into all of this. Uh, and this, uh, I think this last question here of who belongs in the church, who's supposed to be a part of it, uh, will hopefully help with the previous question that you just answered as well, of what governs the decisions that we make. Uh, because things like members' wallets, or sometimes you have uh, you have family units that kind of dominate the, uh, the attendance of a congregation, mm-hmm. and you run the risk of losing half your church <laughs> if, if a family does not like a decision. Uh, if, uh, if we determine that, okay, the gospel is for this sort of group, uh, then hopefully that determines or that governs for us. Okay, we make these decisions because the church is meant for these sorts of people. So this final question here, who belongs in the church? Who is church for? Uh, why why do we do this? Why, why do we have this organization? So when you go and look at churches, particularly throughout the United States, what you'll find typically, not exclusively, But generally, you'll find that our churches are divided based on ethnicity, socioeconomic level, and political affiliation. The the people that make up a specific congregation generally are very close in all of those areas. Most are generally of the same ethnicity. Most are generally on the same socioeconomic level. Most have the same political beliefs, support the same political party. And one of the reasons for that is that, well, I want to say this first. One of the reasons that's a less negative reason is the places people live tend to be built in that way. Yeah. Uh, communities of, of houses, cities, uh, locations within the United States 
tend to be divided up that way. And I think that's something important to remember because a church and a community ought to reflect what that community looks like. For example, I'm here in Tuttle, Oklahoma. That is, uh, if I'm trying to remember the percentage, I think we're 98% Caucasian. So a a church that's truly multi-ethnic is probably not going to exist in Tuttle because Tuttle is not multi-ethnic. Now, uh, there may be things that need to be addressed within a community that's causing us to be like that, but that may not be a problem within the church. That may be a problem out within the community, but the church ought to be addressing that anyways, and that's something to kind of keep in mind. It's not always we need to be harsh on the church, but maybe harsh on the culture that's produced these divisions within communities uh, throughout our uh, nation. But another reason for that is that we naturally gravitate towards people who are like us. That's a natural human thing. Birds of a feather flock together is how the, the saying goes. That's what we naturally do. And when we do that, we limit the scope of our influence on behalf of the gospel. If we only gravitate towards people who are like us, then we're only going to be able to proclaim the gospel to people who are like us. But go back to our definition of the church, that the church is intended to be a multi-ethnic community, which spans socioeconomic levels, ethnicities, and political beliefs. And until we truly believe this, that goes back to teaching the gospel, living out the gospel, who we are, until we truly believe this, and then live that out by allowing it to expand our evangelistic efforts The church is doomed to die, especially in a world that strives for equality uh, and for all people to be treated the same, which is something that we as the church do or at least should be standing for as well, until we let that impact our evangelistic efforts and even our efforts in calling out some of the things that exist within people, uh, within our cities, within our culture that divides People Until we do that, the church is doomed to die. And so uh, we need to recognize the multi-ethnic aspect of the church. But that also leads to the question when we're asking who belongs in the church, the theological question of, of again, who is the church? Who is the church a house for saints or sinners? And this is the way that I would describe the church. The church is made up of sinners— on the road to redemption through the sanctification of the Spirit. We still sin, but at the same time, we're redeemed. We're on this redemption path, allowing the Spirit of God to sanctify us. A couple episodes ago, we did one on sanctification, so I would encourage you, if you haven't listened to that one, to go back and we talk about that sanctification role of the Spirit. But the church is made up of sinners on the road to redemption, the sanctification of the Spirit. And so as long as we expect people to be perfect before entering our doors, as long as we identify certain sins that prohibit people from coming in our doors or being active worshipers in our communities, as long as we continue to hide our own sinfulness and act like we're perfect and have it all figured out, as long as we go around gossiping about other people's sins and other people's shortcomings, both inside the church and people outside the church, as long as we expect perfection from other people 
but not from ourselves, the church is doomed to die. The church is made up of sinners on the road of redemption through the sanctification of the Spirit. And again, until we remember that, we're going to exclude people and not reach out to them because of the specific sins that exist in their life when the whole point of the church is to bring sinners in and allow them to have a relationship with God. That's part of who we are. That's part of our mission of enacting the gospel as we seek to spread the kingdom. And so we have to open our view and open our doors to all people, all ethnicities, all political beliefs, all all socioeconomic levels, people who struggle with any kind of sin, people who continue to struggle with sin because it's a lifelong process of sanctification. All people must be welcome. Our doors must be opened to all. Otherwise, we're doomed to close in and eventually, as Bridges would say, the organization is doomed to die. Uh, this was a bit of a, a long one, but I think a good episode uh, detailing how you get how you get off the path of headed towards death. Uh, we hope that as you after you are done listening to this, and maybe if you uh, the, whatever position you may be in uh, in the the church you're at, maybe you're a minister, maybe an elder, uh, deacon, perhaps you are uh, one of the members, but you have some ideas for ministries. This is something you've been thinking about for a while. I uh, hope that whoever you are, you consider these questions. Uh, who are we? What is our primary purpose? Are we teaching the gospel? What governs the decisions we make and who belongs in the church? Hope you consider all of those as you think about ministries and what you can be doing, what your churches can be doing, uh, because it's it's our hope, and yours I hope as well, uh, that the church would continue to grow, uh, to carry the light, to bear the image into Uh, the the nations that are around us this is it for our episode here spencer enjoy your vacation have fun i will hopefully (laughs) and if you want to bother him while he's on vacation hit him up at twitter you can get a hold of us at any time uh, through our email strongchurchministries at gmail.com or on facebook and send us some uh, messages we'd be happy to talk to you and hear what you think about uh, this show ideas for others in the future. I'm Jack, not Spencer. We'll see you next time.